Pharmaceutical Technology presents the Drug Solutions Podcast, where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain. Join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions, from the technologies to the strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products. This is the Drug Solutions Podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. Today, we will discuss sourcing autologists and allogenic cell therapies. I'm Meg Rivers, Senior Editor for Pharmaceutical Technology, Pharmaceutical Technology Europe and Biopharm International. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Joy Aho. Joy is the Senior Product Manager at Be The Match Biotherapies, where she develops products and services for the cell and gene therapy industry. Joy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's just jump right into the questions. My first question for you is, what are the current sourcing options for biopharma companies in the cell therapy space? That's a good question. There, there's a lot of, of different variety out there. I think there, you can kind of look at two sort of big buckets. There are um, the nonprofit you know, groups that will work with their registries of donors um, to be able to, uh, you know, provide that cell sourcing. So groups like us at Be The Match um, that do that work and other sort of blood banks and, and similar groups. And then there's also the, the commercial entities that provide um, the for-profit um, entities that will, will do that as well. And there's a wide range of really, you know, small companies that are providing that that are going to have a much smaller sort of group of donors that they'll work with um, up and, and one location up to, you know, a couple different locations, maybe around um, the United States with a slightly larger donor pool available. Okay. So in general, then what are some of the key considerations when deciding what sourcing method is best for an individual therapy or perhaps like a given company? Yeah, I think it's really important to look at what you need out of that starting material and thinking really early on about what are the attributes that you need, how rare are those attributes within the population, and even thinking about things such as what is the global reach that you want that therapy eventually to get to. So that's going to really impact the group that you work with and really and the size of the donor pool that you need to be able to collect that material, the distribution of the network that they might have in order to collect that material is, is really important depending on the scale. So things to think about are what is the indication size that you're going after. If it's a really tiny indication, you may not need as many collections even to support a commercial therapy. But if it's a really large indication and you're looking to um, be able to reach a really broad geography, you might need a lot of collections. So you want to work with groups that have a very large donor pool that you are going to be able to access. Other factors that can impact is looking at from, there's different regulations in terms of if you're going to be serving patients in the US, obviously the FDA regulations you need to abide by. If you're going to Europe or in Asia, they all have different flavors of the regulations. There's some overlap in terms of what the FDA might require but there are gonna be differences. So making sure that your supplier can account for that. 
you know, whether it, it might even be down to like, how are they compensating the donors that can be um, seen differently in different geographies and, and what they will and won't allow. So there's, there's a lot of different pieces at play. The other, you know, from just a registry perspective and, and donor pool perspective, looking at what are the, the characteristics of those donors. So there's some characteristics that may be really easy to find among the broader population and some that are very difficult to find. So you might need to work with groups that have that really uh, a large pool that they can work with if you're gonna to need to, to source a lot of donors to get to the patients that need that therapy. Okay, so shifting gears, in allogenic cell therapies, cells are collected from a donor sample to create like a master cell bank, which then treats many patients. So what are key considerations for donor identification in this instance? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that, that's gonna to continue to evolve. So allogeneic therapies are, they're newer. So autologous are the first ones that were, that became commercialized. Um, they're the first ones that demonstrated success. And so as we learn more and more about allogeneic therapies, I think that's going to continue to evolve. But, you know, I think what's really important for developers to think through is making sure that they're not including attributes for those donors, that they don't have a really good scientific reason that it might have a, you know, a critical quality, be a critical quality attribute for that end product. So, so you know, some of the things that might be important is looking at donor age, you know, is that if, if you're looking at maybe a stem cell population and you wanna work with younger patients because their stem cells are, are gonna be younger, looking at, is there a, uh, a genetic element to that? Do you need some sort of matching? And that's where HLA matching might be important. That's something that's really important when we think of say a typical stem cell transplant, which is where sort of the, the history behind Be The Match is. Um, is that gonna be important? So looking at what are the, the types of attributes that are really gonna impact the safety or the quality of the end product and making sure you're not including attributes that, that may, unnecessarily limit the donors that you're able to work with um, without actually without impacting the end product because that can narrow down the pool that you're going to be able to pull from and so the, the the bigger you can have that pool that available the more success you're going to have in getting those collections Fantastic. Now, Joy, I don't know if you or audience members listening ever experienced this, but I, I like, I read words a lot, but then speaking them out loud, I never know how to pronounce them. So thank you for saying <laughs> allogeneic. I'm going to probably butcher that this whole podcast episode, but um. <laughs> all right. Next question I have for you is in the autologous cell therapies, cells from an individual patient is collected, uh, processed ex vivo, and then returned to that patient. So what are key considerations for donor identification? Yeah, so in, in those therapies, the donor is the patient. So the, the key considerations there are gonna really um, relate to, to how that therapy has been submitted and what types of patients it's been submitted. So, so every time a developer, if it's for a clinical trial, they're gonna have a very specific set of attributes that have to be attributed to that patient for them to qualify for that trial. The same is true when you commercialize, there's going to be a set of attributes or where they are in their treatment regimen, 
where they will then be um, applicable for that particular therapy. But some of the things that, that may impact that is, like I mentioned, where they are in their treatment. So are they, you know, did they just fail their first line or second line of therapy? Where, where are they at in terms of their, their chemotherapeutic regimens? Um, if the donor is, if the patient is the donor, then as you can imagine, those cells being collected are not probably gonna be the healthiest. That's already a sick patient, but making sure that they're healthy enough that you are still able to use them to generate that therapeutic product at the end. So there might be stipulations around how recently they had um, different chemotherapeutic drugs and it's evolving over time. So you know, there's recent um, trials that data that's been released that is is demonstrating that maybe we can start treating with say some the, some of the the CAR T therapies that are out there earlier on in the process, and we can see better outcomes than what that current second line therapy is. Uh, and I think we're going to see more and more of that as when when these first therapies were released, they're really targeted the the sickest patients. Um, and looked at giving them kind of that second chance. And that's where, where it starts. But now as we can get more and more data and do more trials kind of earlier on in the treatment regimen, that process is gonna evolve and hopefully we can get these therapies to even more patients um, earlier on. For allogeneic cell therapy, what donor attributes are important for product efficacy specifically and how do those attributes impact supply chain requirements and the ability to scale, if at all? That is gonna, it's gonna really vary widely depending on the therapy. So um, there, and there's different cell types that can be used. So depending on, like I mentioned earlier, if you're working with a stem cell product, you might want uh, a younger, um, a younger cell type so that you have the most naive stem cells possible. And then maybe you want to target uh, cord blood, where you know that's you know as, as early on as you're going to get in those stem cells from a donor. In some cases, you may want a certain you know attribute that that cell to behave a certain way. So then maybe you don't need as early, so you can work with a broader age range. I think, like I mentioned before, the more um, the more attributes that you're going to add on that therapy. It's going to, it has the potential to affect your supply chain. So depending on the, the size of that donor registry or that donor pool of the vendor that you're working with, it can impact how easily you can find the donor that's going to comply with those attributes. And then you have to line that up with, you know, when is the donor willing and able to get collected? Um, when are they able to get, you know, testing, anything like that? which is gonna affect then your downstream supply chain so that you can make sure that you can collect the material and line that up with when you might say have a manufacturing slot, um, either internally in your own manufacturing or if you're working with a contract manufacturing organization where you have to make sure all of those different elements across the supply chain can line up appropriately. Um, so it, I think it really can depend. There's, there's different, especially as we get into the induced pluripotent stem cell space or the IPS space, there's a lot of learnings trying to understand what is important from, um, from that donor and what sort of health history do they need to have and how critical is that if we're gonna use these downstream? Because in that space, you may not just be 
you know, in, in most of the cell therapies now you're putting those in um, and they're gonna, they're gonna do their job and then they might die off, say in, in an NK, the NK cell therapy, they're, they're only there for a short time. Whereas a lot of the IPS therapies, these cells are designed to be um, regenerative medicine. So they're going in and they're supposed to stay there for the, you know, the rest of that patient's life. Um, and so the, you know, those critical attributes are going to be more important in terms of making sure that you're not going to lead to really um, adverse downstream effects. This could be going slightly off topic, but you had mentioned the IPS therapies, and I'm curious if, is it simply just a more restrictive pool of folks that you can, you know, get your source material from? Like, how does that differ from what we've discussed so far? Not necessarily. Um, I think there's there's a lot being done in that space today. Um, it, you know, it, it's I think it's going to depend on on the developer and what they find as those critical quality attributes for that therapy and what's going to impact, especially from a safety perspective. You know, looking at the genetic information and things like that. But it I don't know that it it necessarily will fully narrow down. There's also a lot of work being done now on how can we genetically engineer cells to so that you don't need as much matching. So in, in terms of transplant that we're doing today, you're trying to get all of this, uh, as much matching as, as you can from an HLA perspective so you don't have graft versus host. But in a lot of work that's being done today, they're looking at where can we do genetic editing in these stem cells from the, the IPS perspective so that you eliminate that um, that need, which could potentially then open up the, the donors that you can use and you wouldn't necessarily need um, all of that matching. I think what we don't know fully is what is the impact of all of that genetic editing on the downstream cells. Next question I have for you is, what are some of the key considerations for cell collection for autologous versus allogeneic cell therapies? I think there, there is going to be a, a lot of overlap, but in terms of when we think about autologous, again, the, the patient is the donor. So you've, you've likely got a very sick patient, so their, their uh, ability to travel to be collected, you're, you're going to want to look at collecting them you know, likely in the, the clinical space where they're being treated. So it's going to be at these large academic hospitals, which is where most of these cell therapies are being um, administered today. So that's one consideration. The other consideration, again, is for autologous, these are very sick patients. And so, make, you know, there's, there's likely going to be different ways that that, you know, collection center is, is going to be looking at, you know, monitoring those patients, you know, in terms of the health of the cells and how much you can collect and what other treatments that, that are going on at the same time. So that, that's definitely um, something to consider. The other piece of that, though, is because the donor is the patient, you don't need like those matching elements and things like that. From the allogeneic side, there, you, you know, you're using healthy donors. So they're likely much more able to travel. I mean, obviously we're coming out of COVID, so that was different, um, but hopefully opening up. So their ability to travel, they can be collected outside of those big academic health centers. 
So there's a lot more ability to collect them in, in different regional um, collection centers. And then their cells are just going to be a lot healthier. So, you know, they're, you know, those collection practices are probably going to be mod modified a little bit in terms of what you can collect and, and what they can withstand really versus a sick patient. Now, what are the potential collection network strategies for cell therapy and how can these strategies impact quality, agility, and scalability? Yeah, I think that, you know, somewhat goes back to your, your first question and thinking of the, these different sourcing and there's, you know, the, um, different suppliers, they may have, you know, a single collection center. And so thinking about how many collections are you going to need over time, um, to support, you know, if it's a large indication, um, and different things that might happen in the world, you know, now that we've gone, we've been through a pandemic, there's, you know, different natural disasters. So, you know, there's the having very, you know, a very discrete number of collection centers that, that can support those collections. But depending on the volume or the ability of donors to travel or what's going on in that particular geography, that could pose challenges to the supply chain or to being able to source donors. You know, if we think back to like really um, high COVID and you had different areas becoming hotspots. And so if your collection center happened to be in a hotspot, it might be really difficult to be able to collect donors at that time. The other is working with, you know, larger organizations that might have multiple collection centers. And that's where it can potentially help from that agility and scalability perspective in terms of, you know, being able to pivot. So going, you know, where the donors might be from a scalability perspective or being able to add on additional collection centers as your needs grow and you get through later clinical phases and start thinking about commercial. Oh, and then in terms of like agility, if you have those hotspots and you have multiple centers that are, are available, being able to like move those donors around to those, those different centers, depending on what's going on in the world at the time. Uh, there are some folks that have concerns if you do have that distributed model, is that gonna impact potentially your quality or consistency? So if you are in that distributed model, you have to have really work really closely with those centers to make sure that you can maintain that quality and consistency versus always having that same center you know that it's you know the same people, the same practices that are collecting that material all the time. Let's talk about vendors for cell therapy. What is like the typical process? Yeah, I I think it's important to think about that early. And there's there's different considerations. So as a developer, thinking about is it something that you a capability you want to develop in-house, or is it something that you want to partner with someone? Um, and given that the cell therapy industry, even though, you know, transplants been around for 30 years and, you know, CAR-T research has been around for a long time, but it's still in terms of like having commercial therapies available is relatively new. And I think that's where um, a lot of this industry is looking at partnerships. So where can you leverage different expertise? Because it isn't we aren't at a place where like everyone really understands um, all of the different aspects that are important to cell therapy. So I think partnering is, has been pretty widespread and, and can really help 
move these therapies and get them, you know, to the clinic and, and commercial faster if you can leverage expertise of other groups. Um, but having, you know, that consideration of is, are you building internally or partnering? And then if you're partnering, looking at the vendors and looking at the capabilities that you're going to need. And is it someone that can grow with you? So, if, you know, you might be starting early in a, in a phase one, but having that eye downstream of, is this someone that I can continue to work with? Or am I going to have to, you know, reinvent the wheel in later clinical phases? I think those are all going to be important. And then just thinking about all those other aspects that we talked about earlier, if it's, say, an allogeneic therapy, you know, what is the geography and can those vendors support the regulatory landscape in, you know, other areas of the globe? Um, do they have, you know, the supply chain abilities to where, where I need those therapies to go? So there's a lot of pieces um, that I think developers are considering as they look at what vendors they want to work with. Now, this could be an obvious question and bear with me if it is, but how do you determine if you're like a developer and you're looking to find a vendor, how do you determine if a vendor can grow with you? Are there certain, I don't know, key things to look out for? Yeah. I, I mean, that's a good question. I'm sure each, each vendor is going to have different ways. I mean, looking at their, their capabilities and their ability to scale, maybe looking at their history as well. So what if, have they grown with other companies that have had that ability? Um, you know, what sort of, have they had, do they have the infrastructure and have they demonstrated that in other ways to be able to support um, different cell therapies or even looking at their willingness and ability to grow over time if they're, you know, earlier on in the process, I think would, would be different ways. But I, th I think it can highly depend on sort of the vendor that you're, you're looking at and the scale that you need them to get to. Oh yeah, that was a super generalized question for a very subjective answer, but thank you for humoring me. <laughs> All right, next question I have for you is how does the selection of vendors impact the supply chain? There are different ways. So thinking of how, if you're using multiple vendors, how can these different vendors work together? That can impact your supply chain. Um, that's something we've been looking at is how can we look at the ecosystem for cell therapy and develop partnerships, us as a vendor to the industry with other vendors to help streamline that process? Because if you have all of these different pieces and then it's that developer trying to you know, put them together and get them to work seamlessly, um, can we as vendors in the industry you know, do some of that legwork upfront and develop um, relationships so that we can streamline that for the developers. Uh, and that's something we've, we've really tried to, to work with and develop a lot of partnerships within the industry um, to move that forward and try to eliminate some of those supply chain risks. So I, I think it's really looking at your different vendors too, and what, what are their capabilities and what are their limitations so that you can make sure that a limitation for one of your vendors is not going to impact something downstream in your supply chain. Out of curiosity, what are some key limitations to look out for? I think if we just think even from like a cell collection perspective and looking at 
um, say you have a manufacturing slot and what are, you know, just time, time frames. So when, when is your product going to be released from the collection center and when does it have to be at your manufacturer? Um, and what do those timeframes look at? Or another piece is, you know, what is the expiration date of that product once it's collected? How much time do you have to get it, have to get it to manufacturing? And so thinking about the different vendors that you're working with in the supply chain and do they have the capability to get it there in time? And is the timeframes that those different vendors are providing you going to, to be able to work? Or do you need to look at you know, collecting in a different place um, so that the timeframes can, can line up. Um, you know, if you're, you have international shipments, that's something we've worked with quite a bit. And how can you maximize that product quality when it, you're going such a far distance and make sure that you can line all of that up, even with, you know, customs and things like that, that you have to account for. Last question I have for you is um, just kind of in summary, how can cell therapy developers best navigate supply chain risks and ensure sourcing? You know, looking at working with groups that have, have that experience and leveraging that experience. I think a lot of developers, apheresis product is really, it's the most common product that's used in therapy development. And so utilizing the expertise of groups that have been in that space for a long time, um, I think can be critical and, and can help be able to look at where are you know, attributes that you're applying to donors, where is it really gonna limit um, your ability to, to potentially find donors and really working with you know, those groups that have done this for a really long time can be helpful and learning, learning from that process. I, I think that's, that's definitely a way to kind of look at how can you manage that risk, um, especially if you're in early clinical phases to be able to, to leverage infrastructure and expertise of, of groups in the space um, to get you over that hump to the later clinical phases um, and into commercial. Fantastic. Thank you so very much for your time today and for sharing your insight. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was, this was really fun. Stay tuned for future episodes of the Drug Solutions Podcast with the Pharmaceutical Technology Editors. If you want to stay in touch with the Pharmaceutical Technology team, subscribe to this podcast as well as to our newsletters. When you sign up for our e-newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of Drug Solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars, and hear about episodes of Drug Digest, which is a video series. Thank you to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast. We will see you next time.